Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come as holy fire and burn in us. Come as holy wind and cleanse us within. Come as holy light and lead us in the darkness. Come as holy truth and dispel our ignorance. Come as holy power and enable our weakness. Come as holy life and dwell in us. Convict us, convert us, consecrate us until we are set free from the service of ourselves to be servants to your world, hearing your word. Amen. This is the last in an 11-part series on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and as said to the children, this is the last of the first stories. It's Genesis chapter 11, and yes, there's another genealogy, but thank God the names are almost pronounceable. And now they're giving birth to sons and daughters, which clarifies a mystery, eh? Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and that the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood when Shem was 100 years old he became the father of Arphaxet. After he became the father of Arphaxet, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxet had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. After he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxet lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru, and after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters, and when Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Sarug, and after he became the father of Sarug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters, and when Sarug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor, and after he became the father of Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah, and after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's son was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was childless because she was un unable to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson uh, Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. This is the word of the Lord. Humanity makes one more move. At the beginning, tempted by the clever serpent, they had fallen in love, not with the idea and the experience of a loving God, providing all good things, abundance, companionship, peace, beauty, goodness, and all things good, indeed setting them above creation and wonderfully bearing the image and likeness of their creator. But they had fallen in love with the hope of making a life for themselves, a life of their own making, apart from this loving God, apart from his good gifts, apart. They soon found themselves apart not only from God, but from each other and from creation. Murder, bragging about it, defying accountability, violence at war with everything without, corruption at war with everything within, filling the whole earth with wickedness, having a heart that is altogether wicked from its youth. They are doomed. It's painful to know this about them. For them is us. The Bible will not let us think about them as them. This is us. Doomed. But not damned. God's heart turns toward them. Always. They are not apart. Not truly. Try as they might. God resolves. God rescues. God comes down. Still, they do not and have not turned toward God. This story of the Tower of Babel makes plain that the whisper of the ancient deceiver is still echoing in their ears. This God does not want your good. He is not good. Humanity is continuously moving east, away from Eden and away from God, they think. Babel is the last move. It's the biggest and boldest. If we get together, all of us, they reason, there are many of us now, there are so many of us now, we can be independent of God by being totally dependent only on each other. There's, there's enough of us. We can be self-sufficient and self-reliant and self-sustaining, and best of all, we can be self-directed. We can be a whole civilization. We can be the whole cosmos, just us. Scale will be our salvation. Still committed to the project of being autonomous, they say we can do this without God. Actually, more to the point, we must do this because we want to be without God. Let us, they say three times, let us, let us, let us. In hearing this, Genesis 1 is meant to echo in our ears. Let us make the human one in our image and in our likeness, says the Almighty. Let us. 
The divine let us gives unequaled privilege. The human let us seeks to substitute self-reliance for this divine gift. The divine let us worked a profound spiritual mystery into humanity, into each of us. The human let us worked with bricks. As in the garden, we're grasping at being gods and then being surprised by what we hold in our hand. It would be laughable if it weren't so tragic. And perhaps the story, just perhaps the story is told in such a way as to make us laugh. Children are supposed to see the folly of it, I think. The utter folly of it. They make bricks of mud, kiln-fired, and held together by something like asphalt. And they think they're going to make it to the heavens? Really? The book of Genesis was written in Palestine for Palestinians. They use stone. Every kid who hears this story knows you don't build houses from the bottom with bricks. Eh? Stone. The foundation would be unbreakable, and great weight-bearing stone would last forever. The Palestinians did not kill and fire their bricks. They didn't need to. Further, the making of bricks is associated with the darkest days of Israel's slavery in oppressive Egypt. But this is what they choose for themselves. The Babylites, we might as well call them what the Bible will later call them, the Babylonians. It's the same place, and it's the same architecture. This is ziggurat building. Are doing the work of slaves in order to be free of God, the God who set slaves free. And they're making a highway to heaven that every Palestinian child knows ain't going to get there. This is like us declaring an attempt to build this sanctuary by saying, let us, let's get some popsicle sticks and get at it. Psalm 2, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord. The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And this is the last big move of humanity. Well, for us, not only is this humanity's last move, this is our last lesson from these chapters in early Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 has been humanity 101. Friends, it's been a remedial class. This story is the last lesson in the semester-long class that's been subtitled, Us Without God Fails. What were they thinking? Give them some credit. For the first time, they, we, are thinking theologically. The failings of humanity had been up till now moral and ethical and social and psychological. Remember, we had fallen away, fallen far and fast, fallen apart from each other and simply fallen apart within. We hadn't thought much about God since the garden. That was when we first tried to ignore God by ignoring his word to us listening instead to another's slick words. Now we know we must deal with divinity. And if we must think about divinity, and we must, let's meet this challenge head on. Let us. Here's an idea. Let's create a God, one in our own image. If it works out, can you think of anything more convenient? Instead of being troubled by this troublesome God, a God who shows up when he wants and makes spot inspections, a God who makes demands, a God who set law and covenant according to his own good pleasure, let's build a stairway that, 
Well, maybe not so much that we could walk up there anytime we want, but could control when and where God came down. Like when we want him, if we ever would, or if we would ever need him, though we don't expect it, at least not often, and then only for the purposes for which we would send for him. God, well, yes, if we must, but God under control, under our control. And if not quite in our image, certainly now at our bidding, let us. This is called paganism. The word is not a slur on unbelievers. It is a descriptive name for the default of the human heart. Every human heart, mine, yours, theirs. Listen to its description, a corrective description given by G.K. Chesterton. The term pagan is continuously used as meaning a man without religion. But a pagan is generally a man with about half a dozen. Pagans are depicted as, above all things, drunk and lawless. But they really are, above all things, reasonable and respectable. They are praised as disobedient, yet they have one great virtue, civic obedience. They are envied and admitted as shamelessly happy, but they really only have one besetting sin, despair. Babel, I think, should be viewed as the last desperate attempt of humanity to be free of the one God who has made them and made them in his own image. Nothing we have done before had worked, they know, so they reason, let's try religion. From the moment they conceived of a tower, they broke what we later will learn are the first two commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, says the Lord. The most, most obvious other god being us, individually, well, even better still, collectively now. They set themselves up as creators of reality. Let us make. They thought to lift themselves up to the status of divinity. Second, thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. Most obvious and frequent again being us. They seek a means to remake God in their own image. Mimicking God making us, they say, let us make. They thought to lower divinity down to their attainable level. This will not do. As if to defy his defiers, God says, let us. Hasn't said it since the first chapter. Let us. As if to defy, God comes down, not using their stairway, of his own volition and timing, no thanks to them, and scatters language, thus scattering them. Their, their project comes to an end. Babel was the final move in the experiment in human autonomy. This move, the collective move, the religious move, the civilized civilization move, now fails too. Up till then, human language had been one tongue, no longer. Language and all the other parts of culture that come with us will divide us now. We are simply less able. The diminishment is not so much a punishment. Again, divine anger is not much a part of this story either. It is, it seems, a quite appropriate response to the attempt to diminish God. We're diminished. Our need for God, well, we've denied it. Our desire for God, well, we've neglected it. Our failure before God again, which is now our failure now before each other too, 
tragically seen now on the largest of scales, can help us now change our focus. A wayward humanity can now at last, at least, maybe, learn this. Going east, we have lost our way. And what is more, and most blessed of all, we can learn this. A loving God will come down looking for us as he did with our parents hiding in bushes or now scattered throughout the earth. And he promises salvation. These are the lessons of Remedial Humanity 101. Scattering is important to the story. It's important to God. God had blessed humanity repeatedly. Be fruitful and multiply, filling the whole earth. That blessing makes this possible. That command is to populate by procreation and to people the whole earth by spreading out. We didn't. At the beginning, Cain was told to wander. The next time we hear his name, he's built and named a city. Now, much later, after the flood, we're commanded again, blessed by God, to fill the whole earth. The next story is this story of everyone together building a city and a tower. This is not a polemic against cities and construction. God will tell David to build a city and Solomon to construct a temple. This is the desire of God to have a regent, a representative, a bearer of his own image, someone in his likeness, everywhere on earth, over all his creation. At the beginning of Acts, it's another era now, Jesus tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, surrounding Judea, nearby Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the earth. There's that command again, fill the whole earth. Those early disciples, they don't move. They stay in Jerusalem. They stay home. They do not scatter. There's no report of them planning to do so or even thinking about it. Gospel stayed in Jerusalem until, until God sends a wave of persecution in the city of Jerusalem, where exists the forces of empire and hostility and religion concentrating there. They flee, scattering in many directions. The gospel of this loving God then and only then goes far and wide. And they will eventually, blessedly, quite quickly, fill the earth with the good news about Jesus. The human hesitates to leave home. The human fears to be alone. The human trusts others that they can see more than the God they cannot see. Jesus, I will be with you to the ends of the earth. It's hard to trust, then and now. But that is the command. The Bible teaches here in Genesis, there in Acts, God will have his witnesses bearing his image throughout the whole of his creation. Yes, us without God fails. But God will not let us succeed in this. For God has something better for us. This story, chronologically, is in the middle of the last chapter 
I think if you and I were editors, we might be tempted to insert it in the middle of chapter 10, specifically in the generation of Peleg when we are told the world divided. Placing the story here out of temporal order allows us now to follow when the story's finished the next generations uninterrupted until we get to Abraham, because that's where we're going. This is the moment, the generation, the age of a new beginning. Like the genealogies before this one, there are 10 names in a row, Seth to Noah, now Shem to Abram. And like the genealogies before, a new beginning is signaled by a man with three sons, Adam's Cain, Abel, Seth, Noah's Ham, Shem, Japheth, Terah's Nahor, Haran, and Abram. The story that begins next will have no end. Abram and Sarai, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah and Rachel, Joseph and Egypt, Moses out of Egypt, Joshua and Deborah, Samson, Gideon, Ruth and Naomi, David and the kings and the priests and the prophets. It is the story of God's salvation for all humanity, the coming of the Savior. Up till now, we have been learning of the creation and providence of God, a providence that provides all things, including life lessons for our instruction. Now with this new story, a new course, Salvation 101, if you will, begins. We will learn of the election and salvation of God. Now instead of this being a large plenary class from here on out, Salvation 101 starts with individual tutoring. God and Abram. Just one, then some more, well then more, and then all, you and me. By the end of the story, the end of the new semester, the earth will be filled, and the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. At its beginning, this new story starts with a declaration we've not heard before. It stops us. I can't even guess what the next divine move might be. It says simply, Sarai was barren. What's God gonna do with that? It'll be a long story, but in it, God will not fail. Centuries later, with a different language, of a different nation, a Greek, descendant of Japheth, dwelling in Shem's tents, the physician Luke, will write a gospel after he has carefully researched all matters, interviewing his contemporaries, reading the reports of earlier scribes, Genesis not least among them. He will declare that God has come down with salvation. He will tell of the birth of the Savior, Jesus, son of Joseph, walk us all the way back through David, all the way back to Abram, reciting Genesis back to Noah, back to Adam, back to God. And then he will tell us the story of God's Spirit, who came down on all the disciples at Pentecost, giving them the ability to speak in languages they had not studied. But that's only part of the miracle that day. Those that heard them speak understood. They made plain the good news about God's salvation in Jesus. Babel has been reversed. The variety of language is not barrier to our labor for God, but means now. Now the word goes out in all the languages to all the peoples, to the uttermost ends of the earth. 
the word, that word the Bible teaches us, creates worlds, calls into existence that which did not exist, and raises up a new people. The word of God does that today. And then, at the last, someday, we are promised, there will be a great multitude that no one can count from every nation and tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Together, they will shout with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. And the angels and the elders and the creatures will say, Amen. Amen? Let us pray. Scatter us with good news that our failings are not final, that your love is everlasting. You who made us in your image, come to us. And he who perfectly reflects your image saves us. Teach us to scatter that you may gather and that together we will shout salvation belongs to you. And all creation will say yes.